Almighty God, as your Son fed the multitude in the wilderness, feed us today and every day with your holy word and assure us daily of your unconditional love for each of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Your gospel reading is the, uh, the sermon text on page 10 of your bulletin. And I think it, it's worth saying that this feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in the gospels that occurs in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is, I suppose, um, an indication of its importance. And in fact, uh, this feeding of the 5,000 was viewed by many in the early church as a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, because if you take a look, uh, this would be in verse uh, 18, no, I'm sorry, verse 19. Notice, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up toward heaven. This is what he does in the Lord's Supper. He looks up, he blessed the food, broke the loaves, and gave them, he distributed them. It's the same phraseology used uh, of the Lord's Supper. And so the early church saw a connection here of kind of a foreshadowing of that greater meal which was to come. So verse 13 of our lesson. Now when Jesus heard about John, well, what did he hear about John? <laughs> and that's covered in uh, Matthew 13, the previous chapter, uh, it's John's martyrdom. John is being put to death for his faith, for his steadfast witness to the truth of God's word. And the words about John in verse 13, notice they're, they're slanted, they're italicized. That means they don't occur in the Greek. What occurs in the Greek is what's in regular uh, type, typeface the italicized words are added for the sake of clarity. So what you have before you is a New American Standard version of this passage, very literal. I like literal. Um, and so the italicized words are added for the sake of clarity. So you get the context. So it's the, it's the hearing about John, the martyrdom of John, and that is uh, Roman numeral one, letter A on page 11, John's martyrdom foreshadows Christ's passion. And it's not only the martyrdom of John that looks forward to the passion, the death of Jesus. It's also the attempt by King Herod in Matthew chapter 2 to put the infant Christ to death. That foreshadows uh, his passion as well. So, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself, and when the people heard about this, added for clarity, they, notice this, they followed him on foot from the cities. They followed him. And notice Roman numeral one, letter B, in Matthew, and I thought this was interesting. Miracles occur in Matthew's gospel only after there is a reference to people following Jesus only after they're following Jesus. To follow is to be a disciple. In Matthew's gospel, 
following equals faith. They're synonymous terms, following and believing. And he does the miracles only in response to faithful following. So you can track that through Matthew. I've given you a bunch of references there. So to follow is to believe, is to be a disciple. And one commentator said, okay, so if, if, if you want to witness miracles, follow. Follow Christ. And I will warn you, too, miracles are sometimes um, invisible to the naked eye. They're visible to the eye of faith, such as the Lord's Supper, the consecration of the host, and the presence of Christ in the, in the meal. This is the same miracle as the incarnation of our Lord, but who witnesses the incarnation? We notice it from its effects. Verse 14. When he came ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And of course, he will go on to heal their hunger as well. But notice he felt compassion. Uh, compassion, that word in the Greek is it's a gut reaction. It's the uneasiness. It's the funny feeling you get in your core when you witness someone in need or something. It could be an animal. When, when you witness someone or something in need, it tugs at your heart. There's a, a visceral feeling that you can detect. That's compassion. And so letter C of Roman number one, Jesus is moved. And I put moved in there because he's moved to act. Mercy is the same kind of word in the Greek. Mercy, when, when you experience mercy, you're moved to do something about the need that you witness. The same is true for compassion. You're moved to act. So verse 15 now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, and I have to warn you here, <laughs> whenever the disciples come to Jesus to say something, it's usually something stupid, okay? This place is secluded, and the hour is already past to eat. Send the crowds away so they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So Roman numeral two, the disciples overlooked Jesus which is what you and I are tempted to do whenever there is a need, whenever we're confronting a challenge, uh, an enormous challenge, we immediately think about uh, our own spare resources and, and we despair of what we don't have and we totally overlook the Lord, do we not? So letter A, the disciples seem upset or irritated. I mean, they really do. They feel a need to spell out for him the situation. Like, uh, duh, you know, can't you tell what time it is? They tell him where they are, number one, number two, what time it is, and number three, what he should do. And it, it caused me to consider how many times do we talk to God in the same way? 
feeling a need to spell out for him what the situation is that we're confronting. Well, the truth is, Jesus already knows what we're confronting. And I suppose there's nothing wrong with spelling it out. If it, if it helps, if it's cathartic for us <laughs> to do it, I'm, the Lord bears with us, right, in, in all sorts of situations. Uh, but, but he already knows, and I was reminded of this when I was talking to Jeannie Evan a few days ago, and she was telling me about her son Peter, who is a professor over in Japan. And, and Peter, in, in his apartment, he hosts uh, like a Taizai worship service every week, and he plays the guitar, the people sing, and they worship the Lord. Um, but the landlord didn't like it. And so the landlord over in Japan said, you've got 17 days to move out. <laughs> okay, you need to find another place. And, and if you've ever looked for a place in Japan, which I've not, but I'm told that it's very difficult to find a living place in Japan. Um, and so... He called up his mom and he said, Mom, he said, I've got 17 days to find a new place. I've been looking. I haven't found anything yet. And Jeannie said to him, Peter, the Lord knows. He knows what you need. Three days later, he found another place where he can hold his worship services, an apartment that uh, it's a, there's a business down below and there's no one there on the weekends so they're free to make all the noise they want which I'm sure they didn't make a whole lot but anyway the Lord provides the Lord knows the Lord knows so that means if the Lord knows that means if the Lord wants you to have that thing whatever it is you will if he wants you to have it you'll get it you'll receive it and if you don't receive it you don't need it Verse 17, we're going to skip 16 for just a moment. Verse 17, they said to him, we have nothing here except five loaves and two fish. So what they have, letter B on, on their Roman numeral two, what they do have they consider as nothing. They consider it Nothing. The disciples are intimidated by the enormity of the challenge confronting them. They're intimidated by it, and so are we, by the enormity of the challenges confronting you and me. And against the enormity of the challenge, faith tends to shrivel. Faith shrivels until it hears the promises of God once again. And what we have, we often consider as nothing. You know, we, we look at the Lord's Supper and we, we see a, like a little styrofoam type of wafer. It's not styrofoam, by the way, but it, it looks and it tastes that way. And there's wine, and we say, we, we say to ourselves, what is this? I can skip it. I really don't need it. I'm fine without it. It's been a month or two months. It's been a year. I'm okay. We consider these things nothing. Or the font. It's water, that's all. And some words. Yeah, word from God, but 
All too often we're tempted to consider it as nothing. Christ on the cross, if you were alive 2,000 years ago outside of the city of Jerusalem on that good Friday afternoon, you would see a man hanging on the cross and you would think just another man being crucified by the Roman government. They do it all the time. What possible good could that accomplish for me or what good could it do me? We would think that way. We consider these things of God to be nothing in our eyes. And yet we read in Philippians 2 of the man on that cross, he made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's faith. That man on the cross produces that faith which brings you here to receive the things that the world considers nothing. But God can do a lot with nothing, or what we consider nothing. So Jesus responds, verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go, you give them something to eat. You, Roman numeral three, letter A, you is emphatic, it's emphasized here. It's mentioned twice in the Greek, you, you, give them something to eat. You see, ordinarily, Jesus Jesus doesn't minister to you directly from heaven in glory. You die of fright. So would I. He deals with you. He ministers to you through people. And that's an offense to us because we don't always like people. But apart from people, he's probably not going to talk to you. He's not going to minister to you. Ordinarily, he won't, apart from his servants. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's preparing his disciples for ministry. He's preparing them for that time when his visible presence, not his presence, but his visible presence will be withdrawn. They will be his hands. They will be his feet. And so verse 18, and he said, what you consider nothing, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. Letter B, this is, I think, the key verse of the lesson. Bring them here to me. Bring what? Bring those things you think of so little. Bring them to me. So what do you consider as nothing? Your marriage, in your eyes, nothing? Not worth saving? Jesus would say, bring it to me. Your future may seem hopeless. Jesus would say, bring it to me. Your reputation may be in shambles. Jesus would say, bring it to me. He can do a lot with very little. 
point number two, or point number one under letter B. Jesus does not create new food. He's not going to take the five loaves and the two fish and toss them over his shoulder and say, yeah, that's nothing. Let me show you what's really helpful and produce something totally new. No, he won't do that. Rather, he takes what we despise and he multiplies it. He takes the five loaves and the two fish, which we disdain as nothing, and he multiplies it. He doesn't create new food. Rather, point number two, he honors what the disciples already had, or he multiplies it. That's honoring it. He honors what they despise. Those five loaves and two fish are gifts from God. They're not nothing. It reminds me, there's ample foreshadowing of this in the Old Testament. The widow of Zarephath, I reference 1 Kings chapter 17. This widow is starving. The people of Israel are starving. There's been no rain. God commanded the prophet Elijah to say that there would be no rain in Israel until God gave the word. So everything's drying up. There's precious little food. And he tells Elijah, he says, go to a widow in Zarephath. That's a, a Gentile country. It's near Sidon, Phoenicia. Go to a widow of Zarephath. I've commanded her to feed you. Now she's got next to nothing. So he comes to the widow up near Sidon. He says, give me something to drink. And she gave him some water. Then he says, he noticed she had some flour in a little jar. And he says, make me a, a small cake from the flour you have. And she said, sir, this little jar is all I have. And I have a little bit of oil in a jug. That's all. I'm gathering sticks to make a small fire, to make a small cake for my son and I, and then we will die. And Elijah said, no. Make me a small cake, and then you and your son may eat. And she did so. She made him a small cake, brought it to him, he ate it, And Elijah said, your flour will not fail, your your oil will not fail until the Lord brings rain upon the earth. And she and her son and Elijah ate for many, many days until the Lord brought rain once again upon the earth. Elijah did not despise the little that the widow had God did not despise it. From it, God multiplied what was needed. You see that also in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's not Elijah this time, but Elisha. There's a widow, once again, and she has a small amount of oil. Elisha asks her to share it. She's reluctant. 
he asked her, what do you have in the house? She says, a little bit of oil. She said, a creditor is after me, and I don't have the money to pay him, and he's threatened to take my two sons as slaves in payment for, why, for my debt. And he asked, what's in your house? She said, just a little oil, olive oil. So go out and gather as many vessels as you can find. Not a few. Get as many as you can find. She and her two sons go out and gather many vessels. He says, now, start pouring to one after the other. When you pour into one and it's full, set it aside. Start pouring into the other. They poured oil into every vessel until it was full, until there were no more vessels, and then the oil stopped. God did not despise the little bit that the woman had. From that little bit, God did a miracle of multiplication, and he provided more than what was needed. God can do a lot with a little. As I mentioned earlier in the children's talk, God multiplies disciples in the same way. Through the message of the cross that is proclaimed, God multiplies believers here and around the globe. He does it every day, every hour of every day. So point number three, God employs ordinary things to do extraordinary things. He employs common things to do uncommon work. Whether it's the water in baptism and words that are spoken there, whether it is the bread and wine of Holy Communion which hosts the body and blood of our Lord, God uses ordinary things every day, things that the world despises but we should honor because of what God does with them. Letter C, the Lord is not intimidated by the enormity of the challenge. The Lord is not intimidated by the enormity of the challenge facing you or facing me. And I'll tell you this, the greatest challenge you and I face, every human being faces, the greatest challenge is the Lord himself. Because God is a God of contradiction. In Exodus chapter 34, we read this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to a thousand generations and forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. That's true on the one hand, but on the other hand, we read this, He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That's the other reality about God. And that's the greatest challenge. How can God forgive sin on the one hand, while at the same time, he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished? How can he do that? How can he both be both merciful and righteous simultaneously? And the answer, as you know, is the cross. The wages of sin is death. And at the cross, God takes his own medicine. In the person of his son, God chooses to suffer the death that we deserve so that we might inherit forgiveness, righteousness, and the life that belongs to him. My friends, the Lord is not intimidated by any challenge confronting you or me today. Your marriage may be on the rocks. Jesus says, bring it to me. Your body may be weakened by illness. Jesus says, bring it to me. Your future may seem hopeless. Jesus says, bring that to me. 
The disciples disdained the five loaves and the two fish they had been given. They treated these things as nothing. But Jesus didn't. He didn't view these things as nothing. Jesus knew, and I hope we know, that God will not likely not replace what he's given you. Instead, God will bless, he will increase, he will multiply that which he has already given. Whatever you and I consider nothing today is what he will use in the future. So what is your nothing? What has the Lord given you that seems completely inadequate and insufficient to your need? Bring it to Jesus. God can do a lot with just a little. Jesus plus your nothing equals everything. In his precious name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.